keep your curiosity alive. You got to be able to look at a problem, figure out, you know, how to tear it out in the most understandable way possible for you and ask people around you that may be able to help. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, it's time to hit the slopes. It's episode 119, and this week we are getting a behind-the-scenes look at custom ski manufacturing. You know, if you like skiing or if you're a snowboarder like me, you're definitely going to like this episode. Our guest this week is Mike McCabe, CEO and co-founder of Folsom Custom Skis. They're a Colorado-based manufacturer of custom skis and one of the only outfits like theirs based here in the U.S., It's a long conversation today, so I'm going to do my best to keep this intro short. Here are the three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll hear about Mike's background and his story leading up to the creation of Folsom Custom Skis. Second, we'll get into the details as to what it's like running a boutique ski manufacturer like his. We'll talk about materials and how to design a ski that's perfect for the individual that's buying it, and we'll hear how his company has survived and thrived in an industry where achieving success and stability can be pretty challenging. We definitely get into some of the details here around the manufacturing, but there's just as much, if not more, business advice to go along with that. Finally, towards the end of the conversation, we talk about hitting the slopes, favorite resorts, where we want to go next, the perfect conversation for a winter episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Mike, if you want to follow Folsom Custom Skis on Facebook or Instagram or check out what they've got at their website, well, all of that's over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 119. That'll take you straight to the show notes page. And by the way, since we've been doing more of these like uh, how it's made style episodes lately, you know, we were just talking about composites for running shoes recently. We're talking about skiing today and how ski manufacturing works. Well, hey, if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a five star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts, or you can just leave us a quick five-star rating at Spotify as well, depending on where you're listening. By the way, if you're going to Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave that short review. doesn't need to be more than a couple sentences, but hey, we're at like 83, just over 80 reviews as of this episode, so we are getting close to that 100 mark, and I would love it if you help put us over that edge. I will give you a shout-out on the show. I might even read the review here at the beginning of the episode, but again, hey, if you can leave us those five-star rating and reviews over at apple podcasts or spotify it would be greatly appreciated with that like i said long episode ahead of us awesome episode ahead of us it's time to meet up with mike mccabe mike if we were having this conversation in aspen colorado today you mentioned you have a shop up there that's where you spend a lot of your time where might that be your favorite watering hole paint the picture for us <laughs> yeah absolutely so my uh manufacturing facility is actually located where i'm at right now here in denver um but i try to get up to our aspen arm as often as i can and that's generally where i have 
know, created a lot of good relationships with local business owners and, you know, people that own bars and restaurants and stuff of that nature. Unfortunately, uh, COVID was really, really rough on that valley. So there was a lot of turnover over the last few years. So all of the, the ones that I used to say and go to all the time no longer exist. That said, um, the main place that I like to sit down, enjoy a beer, get some good food is Aspen Brewing Company. They just have Aspen Tap and Brewing set up right there in downtown. It's about two blocks away from our, our facility in, in Aspen. It's a great spot to hang out, dry out. Well, not necessarily dry out, but get some beer in you and dry your clothes out. <laughs> I hear you. I knew what you meant. But yes, uh, Apri's skiing, one of my favorite things as well. So let's say we're chilling there after a day on the slopes at Aspen Brewing Company. This is this is going to be a very proper bar conversation because I'm excited to hear about Folsom Custom Skis, but we want to hear your story before we get there and talk about the company and ski manufacturing. So first question is, how did you get into skiing? Let's start at the very base level. Yeah, the foundation of the sport. So um, I'm lucky enough to be born and raised on the front range of Colorado. Um, you know, my parents are actually from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they had skied many times over their youth and they moved out uh, to actually Loveland, Fort Collins area, Colorado in the mid seventies. And I was lucky enough to be brought up in that area. And uh, they introduced me to the sport, you know, right as I was learning to walk typical, you know, one or two year old kids sliding around on skis and getting used to it and really, really getting the bug. Um, another big proponent that really got me fired up on the sport and kept me in it for many years was I have an older brother who is four years older than I am. And of course I was the annoying younger brother that was doing whatever he was going to do. So he was heavily into the sport and uh, was certainly somebody that helped me just, you know, get there as I didn't have a driver's license for many years that he did. And, uh, you know, just encouraged me and always had the the older and, and more experienced group that they're skiing with. So I was always nipping at their heels and, you know, trying to keep up. And when I look at your background, it's not like you went to school to study ski manufacturing or engineering per se. So I guess I have a question around what what were your hopes and dreams when you first went to study biology of all things at the University of Colorado? Yeah, kind of a, a strange uh, schooling to get me where I'm at now. Um, I certainly didn't walk into college with a strategy of, uh, you know, doing what I do now. When I really first started school, I mean, I'm from the Loveland, Fort Collins area. So the university that's closest to that is actually CSU. Uh, and I'm one of the first and only members of my family to not go to CSU and graduate from there. So I defected to CU Boulder because skiing was so important to me. Started some programs there, um, skiing for the free ride program and stuff like that. And honestly, the schooling side hadn't really been established at that point. I was like, well, I'm in college. We'll, you know, kind of see what what shakes out. And, um, honestly, long story short, I had some pretty severe injuries pretty early on in my ski career that required some orthopedic corrections, um, you know, some surgeries. And I really was intrigued by those docs and kind of that path. So biology was in essence, kind of the foundation to get me moving in the medical direction. So I started, you know, doing enough studying to, to be able to take the MCADs and go through that. But um, you know, as I got through college, the Folsom opportunity presented itself, 
Um, and it was something that I was just very well suited for as well as something that I was unbelievably passionate about. So there was no way I was going to, you know, kind of pursue the other end of things. Hindsight's twenty twenty. If I could go back in time, I would have got a mechanical engineering degree with a, you know, a minor in business. That would have been really helpful. <laughs> Biology's not necessarily being utilized in my day to day here. It does give me a pretty unique approach to problem solving. And, um, you know, certainly look at things much, much different than your average traditionally trained uh, engineer. Yeah, that story checks out a bit more now that I understand a bit of your background. You know, you you got to, for better or for worse, experience the medical side of skiing. So I see where uh, where that would have come into play. But I, I noticed that you ended up working on or working for like a carbon fiber airplane parts manufacturer, and then you were in medical plastics manufacturing. How did how did those gigs come about in the middle of all of this? Yeah, so honestly, that's like what gave me the the majority of the foundation of what I do today. Um, and I really started working for those companies at a very very early age. <coughs> excuse me, due to the fact that um, the family that owned these companies were really good family friends. So I grew up with somebody who's still a really close friend of mine today and his folks owned the uh, plastic manufacturing company and his uncle owned uh, the aviation company. So preteen, you know, right as I was even allowed to have a full-time job working summers, getting dropped off by my older brother who had a driver's license would take me to these facilities and I'd be doing really low level jobs at a very early age. But I'd be seeing manufacturing process, you know, full way through from, you know, raw parts to, you know, just light machining was generally what I was doing. Um, so just got involved in that at a very, very early age, worked on both of those companies uh, really from age like 14 until my late teens, early 20s. I think it was around 20 when I finally kind of pivoted out of that and started moving into um you know, full-time schooling. And I was also doing some, uh, house remodel work and stuff like that. And did I also hear that you were doing like CAD engineering as well, CAD and CAM during these times? Yeah. So that was something where I was lucky enough to work with the engineering departments in these larger scale, uh, you know, injection molding companies and avi aviation companies where I would actually get to work hand in hand with the engineering staff and, you know, play around in solid works and, start, you know, drawing some, some geometries and getting some really simple stuff, you know, identified and worked out there and then actually driving them to, to the cam softwares that start putting this stuff together and actually manufacturing the parts. One thing that has come up, at least when I was doing my research was that how did you decide to start a ski company, right? What did you feel was missing? Were there challenges you had with your existing equipment? Where did this all begin? What prompted you? Yeah. So actually I founded, co-founded the company with another guy. His name's Jordan Grano. Um, you know, he's still a, a really small member of this company that has kind of changed ownership a few times to get where we're at today. Uh, me being the primary now, but Jordan was really the foundation of the idea. You know, he back in really 2006 was looking at, um, you know, the bike market, the surfboard market markets that really already had custom solutions in mind and in place. Um, and then looked at the ski market and said, Hey, there's really no option here. Uh, also above that, 
while most skis are actually manufactured overseas, whether that be in China or Europe. Um, so he started putting the nuts and bolts together in his garage in Boulder, Colorado, where we started. And then I came into the picture about, you know, a year later, once he kind of had some of the ideas and, you know, the actual man manufacturing foundation in place. I came into it as I was coming out of college, pursuing my professional ski career and had a really robust engineering understanding so that when him and I came together, our two minds fused is when it really took off. So, um, you know, to kind of address the bigger part of your question of if we saw like a hole in the market, like absolutely, that was uh, really our, our, our biggest strategy was to be one of the first to market as a true custom ski manufacturer in the entire world. Um, and really, as we know it, we were the second to market in that uh, space and have really stayed very true to what we do to this very day. So maybe that's a good transition to the kind of the how it's made element of this episode, right? I don't know a massive amount about ski manufacturing today, and I imagine most of the audience is in that same boat, right? So, you know, when you describe custom ski manufacturing, what, let, what's say like the, what's the mass produced way to do it? And then how do you make skis? Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'll kind of give you a, like a high level of, you know, how skis are designed from a macro perspective versus our side. Um, and then we can dive into some of the specifics on how they're actually made. Cause there's a pretty overwhelming amount of processes that are involved in this manufacturing, uh, facility. To note, while we're there, we're really one of only three or four left in the U.S. that keeps every manufacturing process under one roof. Um, so there really is a lot of different things from print to engineer to, you know, all the part manufacturing, all the pressing, all the finishing, every single layer of the cake happens here. And it's a lot. But to answer the first part of this question, um, you know, when you're really looking at a macro business model, you know, I'll, I'll leave names out of it. But your average large ski manufacturer, when they're looking to bring a ski to market, whether that be in North America or Europe, really the two dominant markets for, for the ski industry, you know, they're really just designing a ski for the exact median of everything that they're specifying. So your height, your weight, they want to have a, a, a span, you know, let's just use some, some metrics right off the bat. Let's say six foot to, you know, five foot nine, 200 pounds to 170 they're going to be designing a ski right in the middle of that in the way that it's flexing and bending and reacting to that body type. And then they're really, um, you know, really just shooting again for the middle on how that ski is going to be used across, you know, the difference, you know, snow types, terrain types, all the different mediums that that ski is going to be encountering. Uh, that said, you know, if you do happen to live right in the middle and find the exact right ski where you are the median, those skis are, you know, generally work quite well. Um, from our model of what we're trying to achieve here is we just have, you know, a, a quick disarmed conversation with the client, figure out some simple stuff from, you know, just general metrics. What's your height? What's your weight? We like to have uh, a pretty high level skier background. Um, you know, you don't have to get too crazy in the weeds on that. We just like to understand some big picture stuff like, hey, have you been skiing a super long time? You know, are you relatively new to the sport? Where did you really start skiing? And what gave you the foundation to bring you current, um, which is actually a pretty quick conversation. 
And then we like to segue into baselines. You know, what have you been skiing? What are you currently using? You know, how are these these products working for you? If they're Folsom skis, like great. We have all the metrics on that. We can continue to, you know, evolve and add into our process there. But oftentimes, you know, it's people skiing on different, you know, uh, brands and stuff like that. So we really like to know how they define those things, how those things are working for them. We also have our own testing processes so that we're making sure we know, you know, what's relevant on the market, how that stuff's reacting for our own definitions. And then arguably the last and most important piece of the conversation from the custom fit perspective is what are these skis for? You know, what specifically are you tailoring these for? Are these like, you know, a do everything out West ski that's mostly just going to be a resort ski? Is this one of many skis in your quiver? Um, you know, something that's more powder oriented, something that's more front side oriented, something that's got a little bit narrower scope. Um, another big thing to consider is who are you skiing with? You know, do you have kids? Uh, you know, where do you live in that pack that you're skiing with? Are you the leader? Are you chasing the leader? You know, how does that look? And what is your goal setting, you know, look like? Do you want to have, you know, some, some skis that are going to kind of force some fundamentals or something that's just going to allow you to have a more user-friendly experience right off the bat? And so once we take all that information, we have our own, you know, calculations, algorithms that actually will adjust everything that we're doing from the manufacturing perspective to suit you better as a skier. Um, and it's, you know, it may sound overwhelming, but it's really just small, meaningful changes along the way. Uh, really, really small little, you know, dial up, dial down on material thicknesses, how much material we're using, what type of material we're using, how that camber is augmented on the ski, all that good stuff. Um, and then lastly, and arguably one of the most fun customizations on our product is you get to choose the top sheet. So as you can see by the few behind me here, um, we have a lot of fun designs on our website, just folsomskis.com uh, backslash graphics. And we've got a couple hundred on there that you can choose from, or oftentimes clients just want to actually have uh, a, a custom graphic built from the ground up, whether they want to design it themselves or work with myself or one of our, our designers in house here to actually pull that off. It's it's really cool to have a ski that's actually got your stamp and your look on it. So it's not just, you know, one of 30,000 produced that year. It looks like everybody else's skis on the hill. Yeah. Oh, man, there's so much we could talk about here. First thing that comes to mind, I'm going to stick with like the manufacturing happy hour aspect before we get into the art and all of that. But, you know, what 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 are the materials that are going into it, right? You talk, you know, I think this is a good material science type opportunity. Um, you talk about after you get everyone's feedback, that's when you can really start, you know, shaping the ski, picking the right material for it. Um, give us a quick 101, what material is good for what? On the mountain. Okay, cool. So um, I guess just to give you kind of the main foundation of what the materials are that we use in our skis, it's really plastics of a nylon blend, which is really the top sheet of the, the ski. Uh, then we use a ultra high molecular weight polyethylene for our sidewall material, our tip fill material, um, as well as our base material. So what you're actually gliding on the snow with. And then we're using a bunch of different types of composites from fiberglass to carbon, a bunch of different weights and weaves, depending on what we're trying to achieve there. And then the main foundation of what is really creating the biggest structural component of the ski is our wood core. So we're using a couple different variants of wood types, depending on who you are and what we're trying to achieve with the ski 
as you know, wood can drastically, drastically change from you know what species you're using. So those are the big elements. Um, we also use a big uh, Rockwell 48 hardened piece of steel for our edge. Um, oftentimes in this industry, you will find some really thin laminates of tetanol, uh, which is a type of metal, um, just an alloy that is really, really like paper thin, like 0.4 mil and usually goes above and below the cores. We find that material to be, uh, something that we are not interested in working with. We find a lot of negative attributes with it. Um, while some other companies have found success with it, overwhelmingly, all we see is major problems with it. So we just stay away from it and over engineer our skis in other ways. Um, but to kind of continue on in that vein, um, you know, we've got kind of three fundamental construction types, one of which is an ultra, ultra lightweight ski, something that's intended for walking uphill for long periods of time and really reducing as much weight out of that product or that ski that we can while still maintaining a really robust downhill performance, uh, which we honestly feel there's a big hole in the market for that sort of stuff. So in this case, the construction type that we're using for this, which we call our ultralight configuration, is a full Aspen core. So Aspen being a very lightweight, uh, but still pretty stiff and strong wood to really set the main structural component in the ski. And then we're using um, a triaxial woven carbon fiber as the composite. And then we're actually adding a graphene additive within our resin system to make that composite work a little bit more effectively. Um, and, you know, uh, and then the, the other things, sorry, that are really static on this build and static across all other builds are we're using the same plastics, the same metals, all that stuff for the top sheets and sidewalls. We just ratio that a little bit differently in the skis to achieve these lighter weight skis. And then moving into like kind of the far other end of that, something that's like resort, we're not trying to save any weight, something that we want really robust, really strong. The big changes on that manufacturing or, or, or construction type rather are we're changing the wood core to a poplar maple bamboo blend. So we really want that maple to be the main dominant, you know, really stiff, heavier, stronger wood in that ski to really dictate the personality and overall structural, you know, feel of that ski. And then we're replacing that composite with 90% uh, fiberglass and only a small amount of carbon fiber. So we're doing 90% uh, fiberglass and 10% carbon fiber, um, really just to, to give a bigger weight to strength ratio distribution across the ski. We find that with full carbon dominant skis, they get very lightweight and very stiff which believe it or not, is a, a not a great uh, pairing for any kind of hard pack skiing. What it does, the analogy I always use is it's like more or less driving around a race tune suspension in a bumpy road, you know, downtown Denver. Like you just feel every bump in the road. It's it's just not a very favorable experience. And so that's on the far end of that. And then in the middle, which we get a lot of people that want like a ski that's still lightweight, but still skis the resort well. And then they're taking it and skiing you know, some backcountry lines and stuff like that some of the time for those individuals that need kind of that 50, 50 use ski where it's half in resort and half, uh, you know, backcountry access. We do have a solution that's got a couple of different types of wood types that we're using generally a full poplar bamboo core, and then generally our 70, 30 glass carbon ratio, just to reduce a little bit of weight, but not too much. And really kind of 
you know, thread that needle to make a ski that can do everything quite well uh, for people that really need to check that box. Yeah, I, I love geeking out around this, and I'm going to put a little summary around this part of the conversation. Just going back to what you said earlier, right? When you're building a ski, you talk to someone about, hey, what are you using it for? It's more than just the height and the weight that a typical ski shop would talk to you about. And the reality is everything I've heard from you is even though, let's say, it's it's a custom ski – it's really just tweaking the dial on a bunch of different things as you hear what the customer is looking for, right? It's not like you're doing something wildly new per se, but when you hear what a customer is going to use it for, whether it's, hey, I'm going to walk up the peak that doesn't have the chairlift and I'm going to bomb down it, you're going to need a lighter ski for that. If you're at the resort, you're getting on the lift right away. Hey, you can use the more robust, rigid ski. Did I hear that correctly? Like that it's a menu that ultimately allows you to create that, you know, quote unquote, custom ski? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, on our website, we do a good job of really, you know, putting out all the different kind of build types on each shape. Something that I kind of jumped over and just got into the actual construction type is really the foundation of the ski is the geometry. So the overall length and the shape is really what dictates the rest. So um, you can imagine like a ski that's really tailored for soft snow is going to be very wide and it's going to have compromises and how well that's going to work on frontside hard pack skiing. And then on the far other end of that, you know, somebody that's only skiing resort, only skiing, you know, let's say groomers, for example, you want a pretty narrow ski with a lot of side cut on it. That's going to do really well there. And it's really going to have a lot of compromise when it comes to its soft snow performance. So the geometry is the foundation, you know, length with how we want all that to look and then moving into the construction type. And, and I think you nailed that down quite well is we have kind of a menu in there that should make sense. But at the end of the day, even if we just have an order pop through on our website, which happens a lot, we still reach out and really check all those boxes to make sure that we have a quick conversation with somebody, no matter the time change, we, we sell all over the world. I'm having, you know, weird calls at two o'clock in the morning to accommodate to somebody's schedule. And honestly, like Singapore, I talked to somebody in Singapore a few weeks ago and um, we're selling all over the planet. So like we really force the hand. If you can have the conversation, let's have a quick conversation and make sure that we're defining everything exactly how we want. Cause Unfortunately, in the ski market, each company has its own little nuance where there's like, okay, here's, you know, the high level definitions of really the main foundation of ski design. And you're going to find variants within each company that honestly just confuse, um, you know, the general consumer. And we just want to make sure we cut right through that, have the conversation, define it how we need to, and then get into the meaningful changes that you know, are going to make this ski have a better experience for them. Very important question that just popped up. Where does one go skiing if they live in Singapore? Because you're certainly not hitting the slopes right outside of your front door. <laughs> Good question. And I do have all kinds of weird places where I'm having phone calls. I mean, I was chatting with somebody in Dubai not too long ago. They were not skiing Ski Dubai. They were skiing some very large uh, European mountains, as well as this individual in Singapore. Um, generally it's just a clientele that we appeal to generally, you know, who knows where they're going to be or where they're working that day. Um, but they're usually travel skiers when we're talking to them in really crazy places like that. And they've got, you know, big trips where they're in Verbier, France for, you know, or, or Switzerland or, you know, wherever for a very long period of time. So, 
Um, yeah, there's no skiing in Singapore. <laughs> I, I didn't think so. I, uh, I lived in Houston for a while and yes, I was a travel skier at, uh, at that point as well. Well, Hey, believe it or not, we do really well in the Houston and Dallas market because they're all coming up to see us pretty often up here in Colorado. Exactly. Hey, the, the town had no shortage of, uh, of snowboard and ski shops while I was down there. So there is a market there. I want to ask you about the business as well. And, and maybe the most um, intriguing question that popped up is, what was it like launching your company during the 2008 recession? Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, it was an unbelievably rocky road, a very, very tough start for this business. Um, that individual that I mentioned at the beginning of this, Jordan, um, was really the finance component off the, the start of this. And him and I launched it in 08, literally November, like right when stuff really fell apart. And we had a rocky road for the first couple of years. I mean, we we chose to launch our company in Boulder, really assuming that we were going to see a really good local following, just as that uh, population in Boulder, Colorado is usually quite good at supporting local. Um, unfortunately, what we found out is most of Boulder spends all their money on bikes. And when it comes to the ski stuff, eh, they're not really willing to dig too deep. So they're, you know, really just buying stuff on sales cycles, which, you know, it is what it is. But long story short, I mean, everybody's wallets were closing up at that time. We were brand new to the market. Um, the ski buying market is historically one of the most difficult to establish yourself in and really get that brand recognition, that reputation and ultimately that loyalty that you're looking for. So we stepped into this and arguably the hardest time that we could have chose. Um, you know, I was quite young, fresh out of college and was quite hard headed as well. And just said, Hey, look, like we got a great product. We really know how to build skis very well. We have good customer service. You know, we're going to keep this thing small and on its feet until it really takes off. And luckily enough, I was in that uh, time frame in my life where I could make those sacrifices, where I could really, you know, not pay myself a lot, work 100 hour weeks, you know, really make sure that I was, you know, uh, on that very far spectrum to to check the boxes to keep the business running. And ultimately, um, after a couple of years in business, uh, Jordan decided to bow out in which I took over um, with a different group. And honestly, immediately moved the company away from Boulder, just down the road here to Denver, just to have some more space for flex industrial uh, manufacturing that we needed. So we started off in like, you know, 1600 square feet. I'm in about 9,000 square feet now. But yeah, that recession was tough. It was really tough. And, you know, first two years, we sold a very, very underwhelming amount of skis. And we had some very big losses to report those years. Um, Hard as those years were, I think it's done nothing but make this company what it is today with just being, you know, really, really hard as nails when it comes to tough times, really good at making lean decisions, smart decisions, not being loose with any of our cash, really paying attention to, you know, where our money's going and making sure that we can do as much internally as possible just to keep this, this thing as, you know, efficient as possible. Um, which is really one of the toughest things, uh, you know, to wear all those different hats of, you know, okay, we've got to deal with 
coding our website today, getting that built out. Tomorrow I gotta, you know, onboard a new CNC machine, figure this out. You know, it's just it's so many moving parts and components, but ultimately it makes this project more achievable when you're not just outsourcing all that stuff and you know, spending money hand over fist to even just get your electric pulled in, you know, that's a significant soft ca- or uh, cost savings. So there are a lot of tangible aspects to this answer, right? You pay attention to the financials, you bring things in house, you're doing a lot of things that help sustain the company, right? And I'd love to maybe get one more point from you on this. Like, I understand this is a pretty I don't want to say cutthroat business, but a lot of companies go out of business in this space, right? Whereas I believe you've been doing double-digit percentage growth over the past nearly 10 years. So I guess, what's your secret? What allows you to keep thriving in an industry where what you're doing and the business success you're having is not the norm? You know, Chris, that's actually a fantastic question. You are right. There are so many companies that enter this market, whether it be, you know, just a macro company or, or pre-built, you know, non-custom model that's coming in just saying, okay, here's our skis, we're a new brand, you know, let's go. Or other small custom manufacturers, there has been lots and lots and lots that have come into this market and gone away from it over the last decade. And it's tough to see because I usually reach out to most of these folks and say, hey, like, you ever, you know, have any questions or want to know, you know, how to manufacture skis, you know, the way that we do, I, I can help. Um, and we're certainly a unique business in that regard, as we are quite an open book. I want to see a manu- American manufacturing come up in total when it comes to the ski manufacturing side. So we're not like, hey, tra- trade secrets, we're closing the doors, you stay away from here. Like, I actually want to talk to these owner and operators and try to help them. Um, but to go back to your main point, or question rather, I mean, being lean and nimble is by far the most important piece to this. Not having huge financial, you know, attributes that we know we have to pay out to keep, you know, our marketing team or, you know, web development team or whatever it may be, where we've committed to some large cost over, you know, a giant contract. We've certainly just kept that off our books and we just, you know, that gives us a lot of financial freedom to be able to navigate through these things and then ultimately learn them internally, have my internal team figure this out so that we can do everything internally. And that's by far the most significant thing that has given us the ability to to do this. Um, secondarily is my team, the the people that work here and have really helped me get this business to those double digit growth uh, percentages that you've seen over the last decade plus. It, it's the people working here. Um, we're all just, it's its the cream of the crop. Like we've got a tiny little skeleton team and everybody's unbelievably good at what they do. Everybody. It, it, it's what you need to succeed here. You need somebody that's really passionate about the sport, passionate about the product, passionate about customer service, passionate about, you know, really manufacturing and understanding all of this and really, you know, coming to work clear headed and ready to go every single day. That's, you know, something that we feel unbelievably fortunate with is, you know, I've had just a really loyal, good, small team that's allowed me to just continue to grow this thing under my control. I guess that's another thing to go back to kind of the financial component is we have never done any large 
uh, fundraising, none at all, zero fundraising. So we've been operating at um, just a no debt structure from day one. So the day I took over this company in 2011, it's like, we are not doing any kind of fundraising. I considered it for a while, kind of had those conversations, figured out what that looked like. And then was like, you know what? You know, this company that I just saw into the market is actually getting pushed out of the market specifically because they did a fundraising round, couldn't really service that debt. The person who was really, you know, me in that company got pushed into some corner doing something they didn't want to do. And guess what? Everything started to cripple. Um, and so, you know, that happened time and time again in real time in front of me where I could see, you know, people that I respected and thought really had a good lock on this, just losing their companies through their fingers. Cause they're like, well, I raised way too much money. This company's not really servicing this right. All of a sudden these VC guys are, you know, starting to get pretty impatient and guess what? We're out of business. So that's another big thing is, is we just, we had a very careful growth the whole way through. I didn't all of a sudden say, okay, I got this figured out. Let's blow the doors off this thing. Let's raise a couple million dollars. Let's buy a building. Let's, you know, add in all this new equipment and then like, let's go. So it's been a, a really slow controlled growth and just really making sure that our product is always, always, always the best it can be. You know, that's another thing, I guess I'm, I'm giving you a <laughs> kind of a bouncy answer here, but you know, it's another big thing when it comes to manufacturing is, is you're scaling the front end of the business. You need to be scaling the back end of the business. And, you know, our product takes a lot of hard work to get it, you know, exactly how we want it and out the door shipped. And we never wanted to have that, that issue where all of a sudden our demand was so high that we started cutting corners on manufacturing the product. We always wanted our product to be the absolute best quality that we can get out of this facility and we've we feel very very proud that we've been able to achieve that through these growth structures. So you run lean, you've got the team, you don't take on debt and quality are some of the things I heard from that answer. I want to go back to the team because I'm thinking about myself when I was in college over 10 years ago as an engineering student. You know, when when a college student comes up to you and says, "Hey, I want to be a snow ski engineer." What what advice do you give someone like that? So, oddly enough, how I've sourced every single employee that works for me now is through an internship program that's usually pulling from one of the near universities, which we have a lot uh, right around us here. We've got CU Boulder, DU, um, you know, School of Mines, CSU. Like we got a lot of you know hungry. Uh, university kids that kind of want to break into this market and whether they want to come, you know, work for me, that's a much different answer. Or if they want to kind of start their own thing and, you know, go be a ski engineer, my advice, and I get asked this honestly monthly from, you know, a university kid is like, Hey, it's always been my dream to own a ski manufacturing facility. You know, what would you say? And the first thing I always say is go through this with either a very strong financial education or somebody that is a finance professional. Because if you're not paying attention to that, it's going to come back and bite you in the worst way possible. You're just going to not have control of what you're doing. You're going to have to make decisions that aren't appropriate for your business. You need to be very, very, uh, you know, strategically in place on that so that you can figure out, you know, how you're going to move through a bunch of tough decisions you're going to have to make. That's number one. 
Number two, I always say, have your life in order to be able to work way more than you ever thought you would. Um, you know, certainly something that I didn't really think about moving into this fresh out of college in 07, launching the company in 08, you know, every college kid is like, oh, college was so tough. And I'm, you know, finals. Oh no, I had to work, do finals. And it's like, yeah, wait until you get in the real world here and see what real work looks like. It's a lot different. You really need to make sure that your responsibilities, your relationships, everything that may affect your ability to work very hard are in check. Um, you know, and you need to be in that container and ready for it. Um, so that's kind of like step one and step two, make sure you got a finance guy or you are yourself Two, You need to make sure that your personal life is in order so that you're not, you know, trying to raise a family while you're doing this. Um, you know, that's, that's a pretty big false start right there for sure. Uh, and then lastly, I always say, you gotta just keep your curiosity alive. You gotta be able to look at a problem figure out, you know, how to tear it out in the most understandable way possible for you and ask people around you that may be able to help, you know, we really try to isolate things one at a time, stay curious, stay interested, never put something in a container where it's like, oh, this is just kind of a ghost in the machine. Like, no, it's not. There's a clear problem here and you just need to be able to define it. So that's really ultimately why I feel like I've personally had success here is all of those things were just in alignment for me. You know, the finance side, I will say I had a bit of a, a shaky start on that. Well, luckily I had some very uh, helpful people in my life that were able to kind of poke me and say, Hey, if you ignore this, you're going to regret it. You know, pay attention, get this in order. And, uh, you know, uh, is, is my mom who was a CFO of a, a company for her career always says that I got my MBA through, uh, just the, the school of hard knocks and starting a business. Yeah, I like that you've emphasized the financial side of things so much in this conversation because I think when people think about a small business, particularly one that could be based around a passion, whether that's ski manufacturing, craft brewing, a lot of people neglect that part of it. So I like that you've really doubled down on that throughout our conversation today. Since since we have had such a meaty discussion up to this point, we have a little bit of time left. We'll we'll finish this on a life light note. We got to talk about skiing and snowboarding a little bit. We were we were talking about before the interview, you had just come back from Steamboat for Thanksgiving. Um where if it, you know, I know this is a a very cliché question, but where is like your home resort or the spot that you like to go. You were talking about, we were drinking, but let's say we're getting our next beer at Aspen Brewing. Where, where is your go-to spot? So I have two go-to spots. Um, I'm really lucky enough to be from Colorado. And so my family is very well rooted here. And we have had a, a mountain house uh, for many years of my adult life here, which is just outside of Winter Park, um, which from my house in Denver here, it's about an hour and 10 minutes from door to door. So it's a very easy transition up there, you know, and where I ultimately end up skiing the most just because it is the most accessible, the easiest with my lifestyle. You know, I'm married. I have a, you know, one-year-old son. It's just easy to be able to hand the kid over to, to grandma and grandpa and, you know, go about my day. So that's by far my most frequent in resort. The second most frequented and somewhere I always want to be is Aspen. Aspen is just Somewhere where I've spent a lot of time over many decades and just really fallen in love with that valley. Um, the skiing there is pretty unmatched in North America. Uh, they just have 
shockingly good terrain and very few people. Um, it's really amazing how good that experience is. Every single time I go there, I'm just reminded of it. Like, oh, this, you know, the locals are complaining about this four minute long lift line when we're conditioned to these half an hour long lift lines in, in Winter Park. And you just, you know, you, you learn to what I call them is just first world problems. Like you, you look like, oh, you're really going to whine about your, you know, long lift line at your beautiful ski resort in Colorado. Like, no, I'm not. Um, but when I get the opportunity to ski Aspen, I go there more than, you know, really anywhere else, just because it's got great terrain, a big sector of all my friends that were all, you know, in the, the professional ski side of things as I was getting out of college, all moved up there. So lo and behold, the majority of my friend group is up there. And uh, again, you know, between Aspen Highlands and Ajax, which is Aspen mountain right off of downtown there. Those two mountains are really hard to beat in North America, like really hard to beat. It's the place, man. This doesn't need to be in Colorado. Where's a spot that's still on your bucket list that you want to go? So um, I have skied pretty much from the like the far tip of North America to the far you know, tip of South America and a bunch of places in between. I've never been to Europe ever. Oh gosh, there's just so many resorts over there that I, I want to go to. Um, I mean, Verbier is certainly one of them. Uh, Chamonix is another one. Those are certainly on my bucket list. One of the many challenges of owning and operating a ski company is guess what? You're skiing less because you're so busy during, you know, the North American uh, winter that it's very hard to take time to really step away from, you know, your duties in the business for a week at a time and actually, you know, go do this. That's becoming something that's a little easier for me to achieve as the company scaled and I've got more people and, you know, uh, arguably a little, little less problems, but it can <laughs> be looked at a couple of different ways. But that said, I do ski a lot of really fun places down in South America. It's been a number of years since I've been down there, but it's usually a little quieter for us during our summer months, their winter months in the Southern hemisphere. So a lot of Argentina, Chile, um, really cool skiing down there, but never been to Europe. Hoping to get there real soon. I've, I've done Chamonix, which is awesome. You do need to get over there. The, the town is just awesome. And you take the train to all the different resorts along there. It's super cool. It's definitely a unique vibe. I've done Chile once right outside of Santiago in the Andes. It was a drought the year I went. So it was, uh, it was nothing special, but it was cool to be shredding in the middle of August. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I always say that when you get to go down to the, the South, it's, it's kind of the real wild West down there. Everything is, you know, not quite as high and tight as you're going to find here in America or Europe for that matter. Um, travel's a little more complex. You just got to be, you know, willing to roll with the punches down there a little more so. And it's honestly just gives it a, a, a cool, fun flavor for the trip. I've got one more bucket list spot for you. Maybe you've been there, but since you mentioned um, that your parents are from Milwaukee, the Upper Peninsula. Oh, do you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the uh, Mount Bohemia is like at the very tip of the peninsula and you can get 20 minute downhill runs on a Midwest mountain out there. Lots of tree skiing. It's pretty wild. And uh, it's $109 as of this recording for a season pass, which is unheard of. <laughs> it's, 
Well, you know, I have actually heard of that place and I've heard nothing but good things of actually one of my longtime uh, old ski partners. I haven't skied with him for a number of years, but kind of in the back in the competition days was from the, the Marquette area. And he was a phenomenal skier and actually talked very highly of that, of that spot. That's, uh, you know, something that I really feel that the ski industry specifically in North America needs as a whole is more places like this, where it's, you know, the barrier to entry on the sport isn't nearly as significant as like, you know, trying to purchase an Epic or Icon pass or, you know, just a daily pass at Vail, you know, peak season is 220 bucks. You know, it's, it's a significant cost for your average person that might want to, you know, look into this. So unfortunately over the last, you know, three decades, a lot of these small mom, pa, uh, ski resorts have just, you know, gone by the wayside. They're no longer in business and, you know, some of the infrastructure's there, but all these things are just gone. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, that side of this industry really gets picked up again. Yeah, no, it's, it's a cool spot. The hot tub's right at the bottom of the mountain. You just jump right in when you're done. It's a, it's a vibe. Now we're at the end of our conversation today. We got to wrap up with what's the best way to connect with you, Mike and Folsom custom skis. Yeah, absolutely. Just, uh, Everything that we just talked about here is really uh, easily sourceable on our website, just FolsomSkis.com. We're answering phones five days a week here for 10 hours a day, Monday through Friday at 303-248-3418. Or feel free to email me directly, just Mike at FolsomSkis.com. Just to be clear, it's F-O-L-S-O-M-S-K-I-S.com. Excellent. I will have links to everything we talked about in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. It was awesome talking shop, awesome diving into ski manufacturing, talking about resorts there at the end. And Mike, thanks so much for jumping on today's show. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. This was a great conversation. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks to Mike. Thanks to Folsom Custom Skis for making this episode possible. You know, as I was listening back through this, I was thinking about how much of their manufacturing process is just asking the right upfront questions. You know, are you skiing powder? Are you on the front of the mountain? Are you the leader of the group? Are you following? Are you skiing with kids? You know, from there, they know what adjustments to make to the materials, sizing, all of that. Just a great reminder that the literal manufacturing is almost a secondary part of the actual manufacturing process. Anyway, if you want to learn more, you can head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 119. There you can head directly to Folsom Custom Skis website to get your pair today, plus links to Winter Park, Mount Bohemia, and Aspen Brewing Company for all your skiing and Apri skiing needs. By the way, I know I'm normally sending you all the LinkedIn, but like I've said, Folsom is super active on Instagram and Facebook. Follow them there. Again, links are in the show notes. As we wrap up, one final small call to action. We're getting towards that 100 rating and review mark on iTunes. We're also starting to rack up the ratings on Spotify. If you could take the time to leave a five-star rating and review over at iTunes or leave us a five-star rating on Spotify, that would be greatly appreciated. Trying to get to that 100 rating and review mark over on iTunes. It would be great if you can help push us over the edge. And I may even read your review and give it a shout out on the show. So again, go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, leave your ratings and reviews over there. And with that, thanks so much for tuning in. Stay innovative, stay thirsty, 
Hope to see you on the slopes and catch you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.